Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is my buddy, Dr. Stanton Peel. He has a new book out called Recover, and we're going to be talking about that. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Stan Peel, is with us right now. I'm going to uh, bring him on. Stanton, how are you doing this evening? I'm wonderful, and uh, we're both speaking from uh, Wondrous Park Slope, Brooklyn. As everybody knows, it's the the enchanted center of the universe. (laughs) Well, it is indeed. Um, There are more people. I know more people in Park Slope. Every time I encounter somebody, they're in Park Slope. um, But I want to talk a little bit about your book. Tell us about your book. Is it available yet for sale? Um, What's it about? It is the full name is Recover, Stop Thinking Like an Addict, and Reclaim Your Life with the Perfect, Perfect is an acronym in caps, program. It is available at Amazon and favorable and fashionable bookstores and uh, Barnes and Noble uh, websites. Um, it's available in hardback and Kindle. In Kindle for the marvelous price of under ten dollars, bless their souls, and it it focuses something like an addict to me is a really key clause in uh, things that you and I often discuss and at the source of addiction. What we share is a view that you aren't God didn't create you to be an addict, and that much of the baggage that we bear much of what we hear that causes us to reflect on our addictive natures is imparted to us by not only AA, but in the book I talk a lot about the neurosciences, these views that you've been constructed microscopically, biologically, to be this thing. And once you get that mindset, once that mindset is entered into your thinking, um, it has all kinds of consequences, including having the stultifying effect of making it harder for you to escape your addiction. Because among, among the things you've learned are that it's inbred, that you can never escape it, uh, that it's mired in your basic traits. And you and I were going to talk a little bit about this. By the way, I might mention, uh, I have a couple of things happening with Reason Magazine, the Libertarian Magazine. I'm not Mm -hmm, a Libertarian mm -hmm. exclusively, but we share a lot in our views of addiction. The current March issue has been released, it's been mailed out, and I have an article there about uh, sex addiction and being addicted to con- being addicted to neurochemistry, where the debate about is sex addictive has descended to the point of saying, well, can we find it biological responses or brain images that show it is? And when they have a study that has a difficult time doing that, they say, well, there it's not addictive. At the same time, that people all the time display the defining characteristics of addiction uh, as defined by DSM, which is as good as anything, which is distress and impairment. I mean, there are people who are genuinely harmed and preoccupied and completely negatively impacted by their sexual behavior. So that's one thing. It's, It's out there now, although it's not yet up on their website. And on Saturday, I'm having an article posted at the uh, recent website called uh, The Government Says You Can't Escape Addiction Even Though All Government Data Shows That You Can. And that's <laughs> kind of critical to what we're talking about. And it's in, in my book, Recover, Stop Thinking Like an Addict, which I wrote with Elsa Thompson, of course. Uh, after an original case 
that you're familiar with uh, about a meth addict who recovers on her own with help from her friends and mother. Uh, I get into what do we know about addiction and neurochemistry. And uh, the primary thing we learn about addiction from studying the basic data that the government releases is that there is a basic tendency for people to recover. Quite the opposite of what is marketed both in neuroscience and in AA as the comprehensive, the conclusive paradigm, it's a progressive or a chronic brain disease. A brain disease, like you have a tumor that's constantly growing, whether or not you're drinking or taking drugs, taking over your life like some monster movie. In fact, the data show time and time again, data I review with alcohol, with cigarettes, with drugs, that people are inclined to grow to a point where they're prepared to overcome or to quit their addiction entirely. And that the overwhelming majority of people do do that. And what my book, with Ilsa does, Recover, is to say, you have to understand that. You have to incorporate that point of view into your thinking. On the other hand, uh, it can take quite a bit of time. I mean, when we look at these studies, they cover years and decades of time. And what we're saying is uh, we're able, because we've studied this, because we work with people, because we've observed a number of people go through this process, that the book, Recover, helps you accelerate that process. And we talk about ways to do that. So it starts, it launches itself by trying to understand the nature of addiction and how we become steeped in addictive habits, but to recognize that this isn't our basic true nature. It's not a statement about yourself, a fundamental statement, which is you and I were discussing, AA likes to claim, well, it's because you have these traits, you can't escape your addiction, or in neuroscience that you have accumulated or inherited these biological deficits that cause you to be addicted. It's not a fundamental characteristic that you have. Your natural tendency is to seek better for yourself, to grow in a positive direction, and to recognize that is the most, among the most, positive, curative elements that you can have in your knapsack as you tackle an addiction? Well, I think that, uh, you know, honest neuroscientists really realize how primitive neuroscience is and just how little it can predict. I mean, I've heard uh, some honest neuroscientists say, well, we understand less than 10% of the brain. Um, but, you know, there's yeah. a lot of well, sales. Well, that's a pretty optimistic estimate if you say, what percentage of the operation of the brain do we understand in terms of how those neurons flash around and result in a decision? We understand nothing about that. We, <laughs> we are, uh, of course, we both know Sally Sattel's great book. Uh, by the way, mm-hmm. on uh, Tuesday, is that February 25th and Tuesday, I'm giving a presentation at the Museum of Sex under Reasons Aegis uh, with Sally Sattel, and John Tierney is going to be the moderator. And uh, we're going to talk about exactly how much and what neuroscience can tell us. Sally, of course, is a great explicator of what exactly is being measured when, for example, you see a glow on a brain scan. What exactly does that indicate? It doesn't indicate what we're told it's, indicates it doesn't indicate in any way that you're obligated to continue taking whatever it is that made your brain glow so to speak there's no way to resolve these things to neuron impulses and this what you say is very true the people who are most acutely conscious of this are real neuroscientists as opposed to pardon the expression the bullshit neuroscientists who become involved in addiction which was exactly parallel to the case of genetics. Real genetic researchers never, ever claimed that they found a gene for uh, schizophrenia, for depression, certainly for alcoholism or addiction. Only 
come lately parvenus, Ken Blum being a very obvious example who bragged that he had discovered the gene for alcoholism back in the 80s and, uh, you know, expected to be anointed with the Nobel Prize at any second, uh, only somebody who's not really under comprehending how complicated ontology is, how the gene expresses itself, how it mixes with other influences along the chromosome, how prenatal experiences accelerate or decelerate processes, how there is so much genetic material that isn't represented in actual gene form and yet determines outcomes in ways that can be even impacted by temperature and mood of a mother. The amount of uncertainty, ambiguity, complexity built into the system, which we already know. We know that much about neuroscience. We know that much about genetics. Tells us that looking at that level is different from operating at the level of a clinical human being. And so, for example, in both my article for Reason and, and, and in the, um, in the uh, uh, blog post that's coming out on Saturday, I point out no treatment, and maybe this would surprise your listeners. It surprises people when I tell them. No treatment center in the United States of America diagnoses a human being as being addicted based on a brain scan, an MRI. Nobody does that. And the reason they don't do it is because it's in, inconsequential. And how do you, and to prove it, just look at DSM-5. DSM-5 diagnoses people the same way DSM-4 did based on those old standbys. How much trouble are you really getting yourself into? How much are you hurting yourself? How much distress is it causing you? Any particular given addiction. They don't even, well, one of the ironies of DSM-5, one of the remarkable ironies, which I point out in my recent article, is we... The DSM-5 does not use the word addiction in reference to drugs or alcohol. It only uses uh, a substance use disorder, mild, moderate, or severe. Now, that immediately tells you how complex the processes are. It's not like, oh, boom. Like, you know, you have pneumonia, generally speaking, or you don't. You have cancer, generally speaking, or you don't. You don't have addiction or you don't not have addiction you have a set of problems which are more or less severe. And the greatest irony of all, <clears throat> if I'll put in a little ad not only for my book but for my Nobel Prize, as you know I anticipate receiving, the, believe it or not, DSM-5 does not use the term addiction to apply to drugs or alcohol. It only applies it to non-substance behaviors one in particular gambling, although they're contemplating Internet gaming as another candidate. Eventually, it'll get around to sex and food. Addiction in DSM-5 is only applied to things that are not, drug, not, or that are not psychoactive substances. Is that remarkable? Is that a great development? And, of course, all your re, uh, listeners will be intimately aware that 1975, Archie Brodsky and I wrote Love and Addiction, which announced that addiction is a concept that can't be linked solely to drugs and alcohol. It needs to be expanded, first of all, to cover every range of drugs. At that time, only narcotics were considered to be addictive. I was proven right in that. And then it can't be limited to drugs and substances at all, which tells us a ton of things. It tells us that addiction is not a characteristic of things. It's a way that we become involved in activities, and therefore you can't measure it by the effect that a given chemical has on the brain. It's a way we have of experiencing the world. It tells us that every human being has probably been exposed in one area or another to addiction in their lives because it does permeate so many different kinds of experiences, sex and love relationships, which were the focus, our focus in love and addiction, gambling, eating, shopping. Now people are preoccupied with electronic devices, gaming, and obviously the Internet. Uh, it's not, addiction is not a rarefied 
thing outside of the range of normal experience. It's an example of nor normal experience, parts of it that we all know, which grow in a distended, perverted, pathological way. And why that's important to get back to recover, something like an addict, to say that you're addicted to something is not to say that you're some kind of special alien Martian, that you need to look at yourself as subhuman, somebody with a tremendous number of negative characteristics, which you and I were talking about just before. You're a regular human being that's gotten over-involved or has a weakness in one area. You know, it's ironic. We've made all this progress in avoiding labeling our social world. For example, it's considered completely inappropriate to say about a person that they're retarded or autistic. Now we say they're a person with retardation or a person with autism. Why do we do that? It's because we recognize their humanity first, and then we look at this other thing as being somehow tacked on to their basic identity. That's not how it works with uh, addiction to chronic brain disease. You're an addict. Of course that's not the way it works at a 12-step meeting. You're an I am an alcoholic. That's who you are. What a crippling, negative, untrue, because it, your alcoholism varies all over the slate. It disappears. Sometimes it comes back. Most usually you're progressing outside of it and away from it. What a harmful self-conception to have. And that's why in that long subtitle, after recover, stop thinking like an addict is the primary thing you need to do to begin to improve your life and get out from underneath your addiction. Well, you know, if, if, a, if something is a cult, it doesn't want people to have self-respect or self-esteem. And to me, AA is totally a cult. It fits everything, and that's what it does. It, you have to destroy your self-esteem by calling yourself bad names, by saying you're powerless. Um, and that's why I find it so problematic. Do you think, do you think uh, modern neuroscience and Norvolka are a cult? Uh, do I think Nora Volko, uh, I wouldn't call her a cult. I, I believe she's but, a cult. I believe she's leading a cult identical to AA. I think in their major major characteristics, uh, they share the same thing. They say that, the, that it's a, a chronic disease that you can't escape, that it's not within your power to change, and therefore... It says something essentially bad about yourself. It requires you to seek an external solution. Either, you know, you, have to, you can't get better without AA, you can't get better without uh, the American Board of Addiction Medicine or a psychiatric doctor. They both, they share these characteristics which say, you're no good, you need us, you have to rely on us, we're the only people that can save you. To me, that's, very cult-like, you know, like uh, those ministers, like the Reverend Jones, who say, you're nothing without me. You, you might as well die without me. I am your salvation. And here's the key thing for your listeners. Your salvation, I guess salvation is a bad word, your road out of a cut reco to recovery is a road, a route, is a road, that you need to design and follow on your own. You have to be the main purveyor, the main navigator of that route. We give you signposts for doing it in uh, Recover, but you're the only guide out of it. Nobody, it's because it's not a matter of being rescued from addiction. It's a matter of finding yourself that, that we're, we're seeking. Here, I'll tell you a little secret about my, my publisher's the Capo Press. Here's the original cover that they presented for the book. It was sort of a view off a boat with a life preserver being thrown overboard towards the, uh, the water. I hope you and your readers can see why that's completely inappropriate for our idea about addiction. And instead, the current cover, as you realize, is a tree trunk 
that's been, you know, decimated. And out of that tree trunk is growing a new outgrowth of the same organism in a fresh form. A bit of out of the ruins comes a new life. It's the same life, but it's a refurbished life. It's a reclaimed life. And that's our model of addiction. Nobody can rescue you. To think that you're going to be rescued is to cause you to stay enmeshed in the addiction. When you were in AA, Ken, how did you react? Did you feel that they were telling you um, how much they, you needed them? Was that your impression that they were con- getting across to you? Um, absolutely. Um, you know, they said that you have to be rescued by a higher power. Well, that's step two. I mean, step one, we, we uh, admitted we were powerless powerless over alcohol. Our lives have become unmanageable. Step two is we came to believe that only a higher power could restore us to sanity. And, you know, anytime you question, well, is there uh, God? Does God cure diseases? Oh, make AA your higher power. G-O-D stands for group of drunks. I, I don't know any other organization that claims to be God, but uh, the, the AA does claim to be God. But they're the God. God's representatives on earth, aren't they? Because, you know, God's hard to run into sometimes, and they know what God has in store for you. By the way, if you go to my Amazon page, they have some of my blogs for Psychology Today and Huffington Post on the right. And one of them is, uh, do you remember James Frey, who wrote A Million Little Pieces? And what mm-hmm. people don't remember about James Frey is, uh, his act- what he says in the book is, um, addiction is not a disease. A disease is, you know, like when you get cancer or a germ. He said if he mm-hmm. had to believe that he was going to be rescued by going to a basement meeting and listening to a lot of people for the rest of his life, he'd kill himself right now. James Frey, you know, he's had some ups and downs. Uh, and people are still griping about him. He's written some remarkably since A Million Little Pieces and his addiction books. He's done a series of young adult books, you know, uh, kind of science, futuristic books. And people have complained about him that he rips them off, that he gets writing students involved in these projects and that he doesn't reward them appropriately. That's neither here nor there. Nobody claims that Jim Frey is still an alcoholic or an addict. People have gripes about him, but they don't base this on any of his drug consumption or alcohol consumption. They base it on his morality, which, again, that's out of our scope here. But the point I'm making is, if you reread A Million Little Pieces, it's a book about how crazy the treatment he received at Hazleton was. He doesn't call it Hazleton there. How he had a core identity that refused to knuckle under to that. And whatever you think of James Ray, he's not an addict or an alcoholic anymore. He got beyond that to deal, and, you know, he's a massively successful literary entrepreneur. You know, I can't guarantee that people will read, recover, and become that. But he's a person who was never saddled with the feeling that he had this inherent deficit that made him a diseased person that he would never be able to escape. You know, and and he's proven that part of his book is true. Well, you were talking a little earlier about Nora Volko and NIDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse. And, you know, they're in an interesting, they're in a bizarre position, I should say. You know, because our government cannot cannot recognize the existence of recreational drug use. I mean, now with the marijuana getting legalized in two states, they're kind of getting forced onto that one. Well, they certainly can't recognize the existence of recreational heroin use or recreational crack smoking, even though we know it exists. There are, a lot, there are quite a number of people that use heroin on weekends and don't use it during the week. And, but drug, using this drug has to either be a crime or a disease, and they can't do anything else with it. That's a brilliant point. So great talking with you, Ken. In the, uh, on Saturday, as I said, at the Reason Left site, I'm going to have the government tells you can't escape addiction, then the fact that all government research shows you can't. 
And IDA and NIAAA tell you you can't manage drug use. Don't even try. Of course, they're a little, the NIAAA, you know they're going to combine the NIDA and the NIAAA, National Institute on Drug Abuse and National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, into the National Institute of Addiction. They've been talking about doing mm-hmm. it for quite a number of years. They said they're going to do it. They're having some trouble, and uh, they haven't dialed me up to explain what their problem is for me to solve it, so I don't know what the problem is. But obviously we have somewhat different attitudes towards alcohol and drugs. We believe that um, we know that people use alcohol because they sell it in stores, and we see people when you, have, you know, in Park Slope. I don't know. Have you ever seen anybody... Drunk at a restaurant in Park Slope, can I? You know, Chris, you don't get around to restaurants much, do you? Um, uh, my favorite, my favorite ones don't serve alcohol, so no, I don't, I don't really observe that, and I'm not a bar goer. If you, if you go to a lot. restaurant in Park Slope, and there's a bunch of lawyers and financial people here. They come out with a bottle of wine and two couples, and they drink a couple glasses of wine. Everybody knows it. Alcohol can be consumed in a non-addictive way. It's not a secret. And so the NIAAA and the NIDA, when they get combined, have a kind of a complicated deal to deal with. How is it, you know, are substances inherently addictive, which is what temperance in the 19th century philosophy that led to prohibition claimed. And so they're still battling that old fight. Well, alcohol isn't inherently addictive unless you're an alcoholic, but drugs really are inherently addictive. That's basically what they're sell, selling. Um, mm-hmm. And as a, this article I have in, it, coming out, the post I'm having coming out in uh, the Razor website says, well, why would you say that? Why do you think some why is cocaine or amphetamines or narcotics, why are they different than alcohol? Who decided that? And, of course, the logical assumption would be that they're similar, that they both can be used in non-diseased ways. But more importantly, what my post focuses on is, once they try to coalesce around the idea that once you uh, agree on these things, once you uh, become addicted to them, they are both comparable that you can't overcome them. Except that, as you know, because in, in my book, Recover, the actual website reference I use is the website reference you got me for uh, Mark Willenbring's summary of the research called NISAR, where three-quarters of people fully recover uh, from alcoholism in, by a period of 20 years. More than half of them continue to drink and only 12% of them have been exposed to AA or alcohol or drug rehab. That's like a radical communist tract. And that's <laughs> provided by the NIAAA, the government's own research agency, tells us majority, the large majority of people recover without treatment, without AA, and even without abstaining. Let's dial over to the NIDA now. Uh, it so happens I describe, I give away a little secret in my uh, in my blog post. Mark Willembring, who's a nice man, a gentleman, and who I compliment for bringing this out, attended a workshop I did in Minnesota. And there, when I said, "Well, the same is true of drugs," he said, "No, it's not." And uh, I said, "You're wrong, Mark." And Nisark study measured drugs and alcohol. Okay, Ken, I'm going to give you a quiz. I'm going to ask you to provide the half-life for cigarettes, alcohol, cocaine, and marijuana. And I want you to tell me how many years after being diagnosable as addicted or dependent on each of these substances are 50% of the people who have been diagnosable, free of that addiction. Which is the longest lasting, the, the slowest to remit? Well, I'm going to tell you the numbers that I've seen recently that are in my head. And for alcohol, I, I saw Gene Heyman writing about this. And I think for alcohol, he said about 16 years. But for hard drugs like cocaine and heroin, it was less than a decade. It was closer to six years, I think. Very now, good. Those are the numbers I... 
Now, that's about right. Nisarch's data was about 12 years for alcohol, for cigarettes, 20 and more years, for marijuana and cocaine, five and six years. Exactly right. Heroin may be a little longer than marijuana and cocaine. So that's when half of the people have remitted. So I had to give... I had to give a nice man like Mark Willem bring up in my blog and say, you know, here's a man who under who learned through the alcohol part of his research. He's in private practice now. That's why I ran into him in Minneapolis. He learned these remarkable things that most people overcome alcoholism on their own and not necessarily by abstaining, but he didn't stick around long enough for the NISAR data to come out on drugs, which say that, by the way, that remission for all of those substances, and Gene Heyman is somebody else who's researched that, occurs in the most cases without treatment. Um, it takes, in general, less time than it does with alcohol and certainly less time than it does with cigarettes. And if we ask ourselves the question, why would we expect otherwise? Why did God make some substances inherently less easy to overcome addictions to. That's just not the way nature works. Generally, most addictive things that we have different categories for them follow the same kind of pathways. So, what the government and what neuroscience, neuroscience, Norigalco, is in the business of telling people that you can't overcome addiction because the government wants you to feel negative about drugs and because she started ABAM, the American Board of Addiction Medicine, which tells you you can't overcome addiction on your own. What's the, let me give you an example. What's the biggest industry that's developed into a multi-billion dollar industry by convincing people that they can't overcome addiction on their own? What industry is that? Well, the, the rehab industry. That's a minor industry compared to this industry. The pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry... Company and particularly in the case of smoking. After the Surgeon General's report in 1964, uh, smoking percentages of Americans smoke dropped from, by half, 40% to 20% of Americans. 92% quit smoking on their own. Pharmaceutical companies pound into our heads it's impossible to quit smoking on your own. If you have a failure, that proves it. But, of course, if you have a failure, what that proves is, well, you're on the right track. Uh, the Centers for Disease Control at their website say the number of times you fail is actually a positive predictor because really what's going on is you really, really want to quit. Eventually, you'll quit. Okay, too bad it can't be done overnight. So we have a whole set of industries, pharmaceuticals, ABAM, and AA and rehab, that tell you, you can't recover from addiction without us. You need us. It's a chronic brain disease. None of that happens to be true, and NISARC is a study that was commissioned and carried out by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. The reason we know that is because of government research itself. So I have a, a funny case uh, at the beginning of my, you know, the, the, the blog post that's coming out this weekend, it's a woman called Nadine, and we find her in a rehab. And um, she, she ends up in rehab a couple times. She's been day a lot of times. She's not a good rehab candidate. She doesn't work well in rehab. And here's one reason. Some people, they just don't get the hang of rehab in AA, if you know what I mean, Ken. And <laughs> look at yourself. You're not a good candidate. Some people just don't like that atmosphere. She attends the first lecture after kind of detoxing from alcohol, and she was a she was an alcoholic or something about to become an alcoholic. There's no question about that. And the guy begins the lecture by saying, everybody in this room has a genetic disposition to be alcoholics that you can't escape. And bless her little heart, uh, she raises her hand, Nadine, and says, how do you know everybody has the same alcoholic gene or genetic disposition in this room I haven't undergone a medical examination and the way I imagine it is the guy at the head of the room you know, pulls out his book and puts a mark down get rid of this case she's going to be trouble 
And then I move forward to a point at the age of 27 when she wakes up with a lot of bruises on her body, and she says, and she doesn't remember how she got them. That's always a bad sign. Uh, when you wake up injured and have no idea how that occurred. Um, and she decides to quit drinking. And what she most has to overcome in order to quit drinking, which is the theme of recover, stop thinking like an addict, the thing she most has to overcome is what she was told in rehab, that she was predisposed and can never escape, or what AA tells you, you can never escape your addiction or your alcoholism. You don't have the capability of doing that. And then I review all the government data that says, on the contrary, you do have the capability. Most people do that. And what you really need to do is to dial into that ability. Why don't you talk about uh, all the negative traits they described you as having in AA, Ken? I mean okay, you've got a few bad traits. I'll be the first to volunteer what those are in your case, but let's leave that aside. Um, you were mentioning they made up to extra yeah. bad traits for you. They told you you were a yeah. liar. And of all the things that you could say about yourself, one of them is, well, I'm not, actually, that's not a problem. I'm not a liar. Tell them about how they were, so that you're sitting there in something that's supposed to be helpful where they're trying to convince you that you've got bad things about yourself and you've got plenty of problems, but they, the problems they're telling you you have, you don't actually happen to have. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we were talking about this before the show. Um, they want to say, well, you know, addiction, it gets going in your limbic system and it spreads to your frontal lobe and takes control and turns you into a thief and a pathological liar. And, you know, I was sitting there in treatment and they're telling me that I have to admit I'm a pathological liar and I'm saying... Well, that's not true at all. I mean, I'm a pathological truth teller. Um, I get in trouble because I tell people the truth when it's inappropriate. Um, I'm tactless is the word that would describe me back then. Actually, uh, some of the things that I really needed to learn, um, I needed to learn to deal with depression, and I eventually I did learn some cognitive behavioral stuff, and now I don't have too, too much depression anymore. And I needed to learn some social skills. I actually, you know, there's an old book called How to Win Friends and Influence People that actually That's why my uncle learned it in steel, for Christ's sake. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, uh, that's, not, that's by Dale Carnegie. Peel is power oh. of positive thinking. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, Dale thank you. The Dale Carnegie book is actually pretty good. I actually recommend that in our Hams book. Um, for people that need more social skills, um, it really helps you. Because, you know, I was kind of lacking in them being raised out in the country, you know, with the cows and the pigs. I mean, we, I had a rehab program, as you're aware, and I, I still have an online, pro, I have a, an online program called the Life Process Program lifeprocessprogram.com, and among the components is teaching people social skills. I mean, it's hard to believe there aren't a lot of people who couldn't use some improvement in their social skills, their ability to win friends and influence people. There's not a lot of people with a vast excess of that skill. People need to learn skills, in, in uh, as you described, dealing with their emotional selves. I mean, you know, a lot of people have depression, anxiety. We know that about our society. And those things obviously feed into addictions of various sorts. So the Life Process Program describes your basic life processes, like interaction skills, communication skills, emotional management skills, among other things. And it tells, you know, talks about how to get a better handle on them. It doesn't view these things as mysteries or, oh, you're an alcoholic. No wonder you're X, Y, or Z. It says these are the building blocks to living life. And, you know, we suspect that in the course of your being addicted, either as a contributor to your being addicted or as a result or both, you're a little deficient in several of these skills. And the two that you mentioned, uh, you know, social skills and emotional management skills, they're pretty they're, they come up quite often in the addiction field. You don't, Ken, you're not the only guy who, I hope you'll realize this. I want you to feel better about yourself. Okay, you grew out of the farm. That's, a, you know, you lack some opportunities. But these are pretty broadly shared problems. 
Do you know what I mean? Most a lot of people mm-hmm. in America mm-hmm. take antidepressants and they're depressed and they're anxious. So these are just things that you need to manage. They're not inbred characteristics of you, like you're some kind of breed of corn, you know, with yellow kernels, and that makes means, oh, you're depressed or, you know, you really can't deal well with human beings or they, they're trying to convince you you have these other blue kernels that you're a pathological liar, which, I, and I know I can testify that you're not a person with that problem. And, but the whole process is so funny. You described it very well. They're trying to beat you up with the problems that you have, they claim you have, and you're saying, well, I don't think I have that problem. And then they're telling you you're a double idiot. You're a pathological liar. You're lying right now. And you're in denial, stupid. So, you know, in most places, that kind of an interaction is not viewed as therapeutic. Um, And an important ingredient to get back to recover, stop being like an addict and reclaim your life with the perfect program, uh, the P is a pause where you can employ mindfulness, which is where I know a concept you're well familiar with, where you can integrate some level of control and ability to slow your life down so that you can avoid making choices that you've made in the past. And that's the P in perfect. And the E in perfect is embrace, which follows a Buddhist. We employ a lot of Buddhist concepts like loving kindness. And embrace is called, you know, loving kindness. It's kind of self-acceptance or self-love and self-regard. Where you need to, or it sometimes has the concept called total acceptance or radical acceptance, where you just have to believe that you're a valuable human being who deserves to live and to function and to progress in life. That's got to be your step one. Isn't that you're powerless or that you're an alcoholic? Step one is you're a valuable human being who needs and deserves to live and to benefit and enjoy life. And when you can start from that basis, um, you're going to have a lot better chance than when you undergo the kind of, quote, therapeutic experiences that you went through in AA, we're being deprecated, we're being having negative things said about you and imputed to you, as you often have mentioned, that's not good for the psyche. It has a negative effect on you. And it had a negative effect on you in AA, and it it's a bizarre concept for how to conduct a positive relationship to improve yourself. And I know you've often mentioned you weren't very much improved by your time in AA and similar comparable <laughs> kinds of experiences. Well, I, as I said, um, I never drank as much in my life as when I was in AA by the time I left. I mean, when I started going to AA meetings, um, I was abstinent. I was not drinking at all. By the time I left, I was drinking a liter of whiskey a day, and I had to check into uh, you know medical detox because I was in danger of heart attack, stroke, and all those other good things that come with alcohol withdrawal. Um, so uh, that's, that was the result of my uh, AA experience. And it's not that illogical. Um, uh it's not that illogical. It, it happens to more people than you. Again, Ken, I, I wouldn't call you an average guy, but your experiences are not unusual. Um, people end up they're going common. to... They're common. Mm-hmm. They're common. And uh, uh, it's not, you know, if you were to say to somebody, oh, you're going to go someplace, they're going to make you admit that you're an alcoholic, that you're a compulsive liar... And a few other bits, you're, you're taken away by selfishness and all the things that take place, all the negative bombardment you get. You know, most people are not going to be feeling that good after they uh, undergo that experience. Mm-hmm, 
Well, you know, I figured out the purpose of AA is not to make you feel good. It's to make you feel dependent on AA for your salvation. It's to make you believe that you will die unless you keep going to those meetings and to get you to go out there and testify that those meetings are saving your life. Okay, let's let's talk about something good. You know, there you were, a wreck of a hulk of a man, and... uh, Look at you now. I mean, um, in my in recover, I refer to more than one of your resources. You've made yourself an expert in a couple of things, and more than I'm not the only person that refers to them. I know at your website you have sections on avoiding withdrawal, tam- tampering down, tempering down your drinking, um, the dangers, the relative dangers of various kinds of withdrawal from various substances. You've become a go-to mm-hmm. source. Uh, you know, at, at the website, uh, for a lot of valuable information for for me, and you know, and I refer to you appropriately. I open the book, and for you know the people that are uh, belong to AMS, and you know, whoever thought you'd grow up to be such a successful, uh, helpful human being, Ken, you didn't have that impression at some point in the past, perhaps. Um, yeah, well, I didn't know I was going to go in this direction. It was not what it was. This was not. Uh, I did not move in a straight course throughout life. There was a lot of zigs and zags, but I think I wound up in a pretty decent place. Well, you ended up in goddamn Park Slope for Christ's sake. You know, you ended up in the center of the universe, which is how we began our our little talk. But I, I, I mean, at those moments when they were telling you you were a compulsive liar. At those moments when you know you were drinking a liter and a half and going to re, you know detox, who knew that you would get a handle on what that all meant to you personally and pick up some useful information and put it on the internet so that a lot of people felt they were helpful i mean uh I mean I heard you interview in one of your podcasts uh a woman who was in, was she was involved with wet housing in uh Seattle. Was that right? Do I have mm-hmm. right? Yes. And she talked Collins. about, I saw it on the internet. It's a video. And uh, she oh, yeah. talked about how your Ham's reference for detox is the one that she refers her clients to. And I thought, okay, Ken, you know, uh, this is a woman who's well-meaning, very well-informed. I, was she a PhD or what was her training? Do you remember? Yes, she yeah, she's a PhD at the at the University of Washington, Seattle. Uh, you know, same as uh, Alan Marlette was uh, one of her mentors, of course. And you know, uh, she obviously has you know quite a bit of experience with alcoholics. And you were the go-to person that she referred to people people to for learning how to dial down and getting off alcohol. Uh, and I thought, okay, Ken, you know. You're making a, a you know a really positive contribution, and if I were doing therapy with any human being, it's it's not my nature. They don't people. Uh, I had a rehab center, and in my life I've seen people that have been sent to rehab for ridiculous things. You know, being caught smoking marijuana in the locker room. The rehab center I had didn't happen to admit adolescents. Um, so you know. The people that came in there were in bad shape. You know, I I reviewed, you know, I did intake and I reviewed their records. They had some major league problems. Um, They weren't healthy human beings because, you know, there were two months in the Iowa farmland. Most people don't sign up for that or their relations and spend a few bucks to do it unless there's a problem there. In my experience, people, we discussed this in uh, Recover, People don't end up in uh, rehab because they really feel they have an inflated view of themselves. You know what I mean? I don't find it necessary mm-hmm. to confront them with tough love and say, you know, you really fucked your life up. Even James Frey, the way he describes ending up at Hazel, and you're not usually in a high point in your life when you get there. You have a pretty good sense that things aren't working out as well as they should. You don't know how to get out of that pit sometimes. Mm-hmm. But feeling too good about yourself, denying and chronic, chronically lying about how great your life is going, is generally not a rampant problem among people 
entering rehab for addiction and substance abuse. And I find that people operate the best and most successfully when they're feeling the best about themselves, when they're able to kind of dial into not how they're chronic liars, but, you know, and you needed to learn some social skills. On the other hand, I don't know, they... I don't think they send you to hell. I know you come from a Christian background because you're very honest. I mean, that's that's not a bad thing to say about a human being. Being aware of your strong points, your skill, your, you are a man of some talent. You have quite a bit of ability to learn. Is it? Do you actually know how to speak, or did you know how to speak Korean? Um, Japanese. Um... Uh, Japanese is the language I'm fluent in, uh, re- uh, modern and classical, uh, but I, I have a little familiarity with Korean and some familiarity with Chinese. I'm going to make a confession to your listeners, Ken, and I, I just hope it doesn't get all out over the Internet. I studied Japanese at a, at a fellowship at Stanford, and I can't say word one in Japanese. So... When you say to me that you're fluent in Japanese, I go, oh, that's inhuman. That's not possible. <laughs> How can some regular person from America learn Japanese? Uh, and as you know, of course, I'm a genius. But, you know, you can't be great at everything. You know what I mean? Uh, and Japanese and language aren't my strong suits. So when I talk to people in therapy, what I try to dial into is what they're good at what success experiences they've had, what their strong suit is. Um, You happen to have quite a few of them, and everybody's got some. And Mm -hmm. to me, so often what happens in rehab and AA is focus entirely on the negatives in your life. You have to dial back to them all the time. I don't think you should forget them or ignore them, because they're obviously things you have to address. But dwelling, you know, it, it doesn't take a PhD in psychology to realize that dwelling always in the dung heap and focusing on what's totally negative about you is not the most sustaining part of a person's life. If you want people to feel strong enough to make improvements, it's better to recognize what it is they do well and trying to generalize and build up on those skills. I mean, you know, if I knew somebody like you learned Japanese, I'd say, how the hell did you do that? Did you have to spend time on that? Do you have really good uptake skills? Um, did you have to be disciplined? Did you have to spend a lot of time in the language lab? I myself couldn't spend that much time well, in that language lab in Palo Alto. And then, you know... Well, well, well I was in a slightly different... I was in a slightly different language lab since I was living in Japan for six years, but I was also studying very intensively. Uh, you don't get classical Japanese without studying because nobody speaks it anymore. But... Yeah, I was I was there, so and totally immersed. I actually swore off speaking English for a year. I mean, there's kind of two Ken Andersons. There was the Ken Anderson who had to go to detox, the Ken Anderson who lived in wet housing for homeless people, and then there's the Ken Anderson who's locked away like a a, a monk studying classical Japanese. I, sometimes I'll have to introduce the two of you. You know what I mean? They, uh, I, I believe they have two completely different existences out there. But if you can put those two human beings together in one human being, as, as you make quite a bit of progress in doing, you're probably going to stamp out some of your worst tendencies because we all have, if not, a, you know, a perfect is actually a Buddhist concept. We all have a perfect selves, an ability to really be, you know, quite accomplished and quite capable and we have to dial into that and recognize that rather than to focus on ourselves as being I am an alcoholic like some zombie in some uh, you know Jacques Turner 1946 movie yeah feeling good about yourself Ken what's that are you feeling good about yourself the master of classic oh, yeah. Japanese Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't even begin to imagine that. Six years studying Japanese. Wow. Phew. So, anyhow, Ken, um, I'm glad I got a chance to interview you and to recognize some of your great skills and contributions to the field. 
Well, <laughs> yeah, just the Nobel have... Prize I'm shooting for. That's the only thing I'm warning you, Ken. Well, well, we, uh, you know, they give one away every year. We can both get one. All right. I sometimes they split them. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you can get you. Uh, you can get the first one. I'll get the second one. Now I hear you're uh, you're go returning to school now, about to get an advanced degree. You've written your Ham's guidebook. Is a you know, it's completely well done. People really rely on it. You've managed to write that without a basic degree in psychology. Am I right on that? Um, yeah, I did write it without a degree. I, you know, I did a lot of the writing on that. Well, it started long when when Ham started, but I also wrote quite a bit while I was in graduate school earlier for psychology. Um, that's kind of the reason I had to take the break on my degree. You know, I got most of the way to the MA. I have four classes left to finish up. And But, you know, being in that situation of being in school, in graduate school, and talking to these people, it gets my mind working really well, and it gets me very creative. So I wind up, you know, writing a book, a self-help book, uh, at the same time that I'm trying to complete my classes. But uh, in I other words, need to take uh, a little break. Yeah. It, 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 it creates it, you're one of the people who've been too active and successful in the field to get a degree in the field because in other words <laughs> I mean you go into a class and they could study a book like the one you happen to have written that would be just like hilarious if you flunk the exam you know what I mean Ken I'm, I'm really sorry <laughs> but you really just can't master this book sort of like a nightmare but I wrote it sir I, I, I it's my book and I said, well, still, I don't just feel you have a good grasp of it, you know, the way we're trying to teach it here. So, uh, you know, you're just going to have to straighten up and fly right to get that degree, Ken. <laughs> well, luckily, I'm at the new school, which uh, is a very good fit for me. They, they believe in harm reduction. They have interesting guest speakers come in, like Dr. Stanton Peel and uh, Andrew Tatarski and some of these other out there harm reduction people. So, and, you know, they're, well, Jennifer Talley is a very harm reduction person, too, she, and she's uh, kind of in charge of the program over there. Well, that's good. By the way, did I ever tell you that uh, you don't have a law degree? <clears throat> Yeah, I know you have uh, you have a JD. I know about that. And uh, I only took one day class. I went to night classes. I lived in Georgia and went to Rutgers. And I took one day class in psychology and law. I figured I you re that's the course I needed to take, and they only offered during the day. And you know I got a B minus in the course. And uh, <laughs> I tried not to say that much, but every once in a while I'd have to speak up because I just didn't like the way things were going. For example, everybody in the class started agreeing the best way to avoid malpractice actions or not to have any notes on cases that you dealt with, you know, to avoid committing anything to writing. And they had a long discussion about that, and the professor didn't say anything. She was a Harvard graduate. And I finally looked around, and I said, I don't know, I feel obligated to say something. I do quite a bit of forensic work, the single best defense that a psychologist or therapist can have is to have written notes explaining what their thinking was when they did X, Y, or Z. In other words, it wasn't an accident that you told the person to do this or that. You would come to a reasoned conclusion. And that's the best evidence that you could present to avoid a malpractice action. You know, I just felt that I couldn't let a whole class discussion go and end up with some crazy conclusion that was 100% wrong. And then, you know, I shut up, and at the end of the class, I got a B-minus for it. So I figured, well, maybe I, I don't know, maybe I knew too much for this class. So it's a danger you have to watch out for sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, I've had that in the past. Um, I don't foresee that uh, in this uh, semester, at least. I've, I've had the first class of both my two classes for the semester. And I think I got good professors, and we have good content. So uh, I'm looking forward to having some fun. Good. Fun's the most important thing. I think our time's coming to an end, isn't it, Ken? It's it very is. close to. So I so know you need to close the... out, and I, I let. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have to mention: go to Amazon, get the Kindle or the hardback edition of Recover, Stop Thinking Like an Addict, and Reclaim Your Life with the Perfect Program. 
Uh, keep your eyes open at the Reason Block site website this weekend for my incredible argument about the government tells you you can't quit and all its data tells us tells you can. Get Reason Magazine and see my article about sex addiction is real, but it ain't what you think it is. And you carry on, Ken. What a what fun it is to talk on your show. Well, it's great to have you as a guest. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it out to the Museum of Sex and see your talk with uh, Sally Stell there. Um, it should be really interesting. Uh, everybody, we're gonna be back next week with another show It'll be about PTSD and alcohol. And uh, so, thanks, Stanton. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and good night. Good night, Ken. <laughs>